I mean, here's the nature of our culture right now. We are naturalistic, materialistic, individualistic, scholastic, pluralistic, and relativistic. And as that's not enough istics, there's probably more out there that I didn't get today. We are not in a place where it is very, I don't know, how do I want to put this? You're kind of considered to be a little bit off if you're really believing in the whole thing. You know, if you really believe in the whole thing about God and all that stuff. In our culture now, it has come to the place where that is becoming a normative thought. Um, Now, for most of you, you'd say, well, I recognize that that Mark guy's a little bit crazy. That makes sense. But the rest of you are probably not actually crazy. You're actually rational, thinking human beings. But the assumption in much of our culture right now is that you, you've just swallowed the Kool-Aid, in effect. In effect, that's it. Um, our students, I saw Sam's back, and, and our students in college are getting a pretty regular heavy dosage of that thinking, that what we need to be is a, a world where we just see things that just naturally having happened, and they're both random, and they're just the way things work, and we find ourselves in the, in the situation in which we find ourselves for no fault of anybody. It just came to be this way, and now we just have to function from that standpoint. But I'm going to argue this. I think that worship is a critical outcome of the fact that we've actually done some hard work in our thinking Would you, Jeff, put up that passage from John 4? This is from last week, so I'm going to tie this together. Oh, you have to hit that that button up in the top left corner that's the black with the white X on it. And now hit it. Yeah, thanks. So this is what happened. The Samaritan woman sees Jesus. They're also looking at the high place to tell where the temple is, where her people, the Samaritans, worship. And she's, uh, Jesus says, look, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on that mountain right there nor the one in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We, the Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That is a one compound idea. It's not split in half. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship. He says it exactly again. Whenever this happens in the Greek, it's not because he forgot he just said it. This is to add emphasis. It multiplies. Worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And later, Jesus, in chapter 14 in John, actually refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. Connects them even more so. So at the risk of pulling apart that, that, that system that actually is in tension with each other, transcendence and truth, their intention, they don't automatically work together in a nice, easy equation. But God hooks them together through the words of Jesus in this case. And now we know, okay, these are both important. What I'm going to do today at the risk of, of uh, wrecking that little mechanism, is a truth aspect. Because I think if we ask ourselves the questions, we could say, wow, I need to know what I'm worshiping about. Some people like to just worship because it feels good, because it makes them, it encourages them. They, don't, they can't even explain a lot of things. I would say that's right by half. 
Because that's worshiping in spirit, and that's saying, I'm coming, and I want to worship God, and I want to engage in the transcendent, and I want to, to uh, have my heart lifted, and all those things. That's right, but it's only half right. The other half is some people, and I've heard people in this congregation say, I really don't, you know, the music really isn't for me, and I'm really not all about, you know, all the stuff we do in, a, in the pre-time, pre so I kind of come halfway through because I really just want to hear the sermon. That's the important part. And I'd say again, you're right by half. Because the truth is, you need both truth and spirit to be a true worshiper the kind the Father seeks. He's the seeker here, according to that. So we're going to look a little bit more at the truth part of this. How many of you have heard of A.W. Tozer? Heard of, oh, good. Man, that happened in the first service, too. I'm really glad, super encouraged that people are reading Tozer. I hope you, and want to encourage you to do so. But he had a book that he wrote that is basically about the purpose of humanity, but he was also thoroughly known as a pastor in Chicago as a worshiping pastor. That was like his reputation. That's what he built everything on, was his worship. But he was not thoughtless. Listen to what he says. Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of, listen to these three components, admiring awe, Astonished wonder and overpowering love. That's an interesting combination. We do this in the presence of the most ancient mystery, the majesty, which philosophers call the first cause, but that we call our Father who art in heaven. And then he wrote, wrote a little bit later, he was talking about uh, creation. He said, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and placed them in this beautiful garden. We have only a little glimpse into the beauty of that, the mystery and the wonder of that world. All we know is that God created it and afterwards said it's very good, meaning all creation was in absolute harmony with God and fulfilled its ordained purpose. It's very important for us to create or to connect, excuse me, purpose with worship. It's not just a ethereal experience that doesn't have any, anything to it. Perhaps it would be correct to suggest that many people in their frantic pursuit of life have forgotten the purpose of their creation from God's point of view. Keep in mind that whatever God created, He created for His purpose and for His pleasure. And in fact, at the end of Revelation... When actually the beginning of Revelation chapter 4, when it talks about the worship context, if you want to put that up, Jeff, it'd be helpful. Here's the creatures. Listen to this description. Each of the four living creatures around the throne of God had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Now, has anybody seen a creature like that, like up near Buffalo or anything up off the right? There's nothing like that. This is a transcendent scenario. This is going on in heaven at, around God's throne, remembering that God is spirit, but these creatures worship him. You might think of them as a, one of the versions, one of the tears of the angelic beings. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Jim, up, up on Easter as well. But look what the humans do. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, which, according to the last verse, is pretty much all the time, then 
whenever they do that, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. This is the only time the word elders is used is to describe human beings in the Bible, not anything else. So maybe these aren't human, but then listen to the next part. They lay down their crowns before the throne. The only beings spoken of as receiving crowns in the Bible are human beings. So now these human beings, what do they say? Look at their, their speak. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their purpose. The human beings have a very unique space in the entire cosmos, in the, the cosmic interaction between God and everything else. Because there's God and then ontologically everything else. And God said it's all derivative from him. And the human beings have the unusual position of actually being part of the tangible creation in a way that's unlike anything else. And the only reference point that we can use to worship God is what we actually can tangibly see. That is our context. So here's what I'm trying to get at today. I really want you to be thinking this way. Your worship starts in the platform of truth. It starts there. It could be something that, of course, and we want this to happen, and we want to encourage this for everyone to have a transcendent experience. Paul talked about it often, about wanting and wishing for people to have that. But it has to be built on a platform of solid truth. Then you worship in spirit and together, hooked together. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. So, what about your system? Do you have a way to look at and think of and believe about and behave into your Christian life that is built on solid platforms? Remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples about um, building your faith on, did he say it was a good idea to build it on something that was kind of really wispy and there's no solid nothing under there? No. Build it on a solid rock. What's your system? What do you have that you embrace, that you could articulate, that says, this is what I believe and why I believe and why I worship and actually is a platform for your gospel story, why I tell others about what I believe? I asked that question a couple times this week. I got very interesting answers from people. Very interesting. One thing that was spectacular was I actually was handed a document that was written by a man in our congregation. It took him three years. And he articulated point by point things that were crucial to him and nation with someone about his faith. He would want to bring this up. Now, as you know, in our context, sometimes things don't work every single time. But what I loved was he, would, he had thought it through. He said, okay, this is where my faith, where my worship, where everything comes from, is some solid platforms and ideas. How many of you have uh, heard of Tim Keller, was a pastor in New York City? Pastored in Manhattan. You, you have to be pretty smart. I would never. They would throw me out of there so fast. They're like, you moron, get out of here. Tim Keller is a genius. He is. And he works with a bunch of geniuses. 
And in his book, The Reason for God, which I really suggest, by the way, really accessible, he says this, I once met regularly with a brilliant young scientist who is haunted by a general sense that God existed. He looked at one argument for God after another, and through, though many of them had a great deal of merit, he found that ultimately every one of them was rationally avoidable at some point. There was an exit. You could always talk yourself out of it. And the great talk yourself out of it is, we can't measure God. We can't see him. He doesn't fit into the scientific method model. You can always use that as an exit. So it kept bugging him because he's like, "This is I can't believe unless I find at least one absolutely airtight proof for God, he said. Keller said, I pointed out to him that he was assuming... Strong rationalism was the only way to access proof. In other words, unless something is absolutely airtight, it's, it's not necessarily true. Do you realize how many things in science are like that? That we've got all kinds of question marks around it. We, we find things that later say, no, we thought it worked like this, but it worked like that. Have you, how many of you have any idea what's going on with quantum mechanics? I'll be so impressed. If you know quantum physics, anybody? Nobody will even admit to it. I don't blame you. Quantum physics is nuts. It's crazy. It basically says that particles at the tiniest level can be anywhere and nowhere at the same time in the universe. It doesn't even make any sense. And yet... They keep proving that, but they can't figure out even crazier. A particle that's here can be entangled, connected in some bizarre way. They still, Einstein called it spooky, with a particle that's on the other side of the universe, and they can affect each other. If this one gets flipped, this one flips at the same time. And how in the world? They have no idea. And they thought forever that Newtonian physics, the way Newton thought of physics, was right. Now, am I trying to say, by the way, that science is, is nuts, that it is not, it's not founded, it's not, there's not a good platform? I'm not remotely saying that. I love science, and in fact, if you go in my office, about a third of my books are books on science, all kinds of different things. But I understand where this guy is saying, hey, I want an airtight proof, and then Keller says, you're demanding too much of the circumstance. You don't even demand that much of your own science. So the, the scientist said, actually, you're right. I don't have an airtight proof for strong rationalism. So then they went back through a number of the different things that they had gone through. And the, the lines of reasoning that they had been calling proofs, they began instead to call them clues. They're evidence. And when we went about it with that perspective, he began to see that cumulatively, the clues of God had a lot of force to them, and the man believed. How many of you have heard of Francis Collins? I'm hoping to see, ooh, I'm hoping to see more hands in that. Um, Francis Collins was the genius doctor in charge of the mapping of the human genome project at the University of Michigan. He grew up in a family where there was no faith context. He was not taught to embrace. He was also not taught to abandon. It was just a big question mark. I guess there's people out there who have faith, but I don't know what that means. Of course, in the science community, he was taught naturalism, all of those istics that we talked about, to say, well, things just happen in a rational fashion, and so this is what we're going to do is look at these mechanisms. They went about looking at the, the genome. 
the DNA molecule, all of the ladders that connect in be- between how all the proteins work to, to function, the fact that they can adjust each other, the switches can be on and off, the, how the crazy thing folds a million times so that it can fit inside of a cell, everything else. And as time went on, he's like, somebody made this. It doesn't make sense. It's not rational to think that this just showed up. If I sat down with you, I don't play poker, but if I sat down with you uh, for a day of poker and I dealt the first hand, it was all aces to me. And the next time I dealt, it was all aces to me. And the third time I dealt, it was all aces to me. And that happened a hundred times. Would it be rational to assume that I, I was doing that in an appropriate way? You would assume for sure I was cheating. You have no proof of that. But you would assume that because the evidence, the clues add up. It's too many times that you got all the aces. That doesn't make sense. And Collins was so, I mean, he laid awake night after night feeling the weight of that and processing it and saying, something is going on here. And one day he couldn't sleep. He got up early, went to a coffee shop not far from the campus, real early, walking by the kind of the entrance to the campus where he went in. There was a like an old school Presbyterian church on the corner. He walked in. There was one guy in there. The pastor was there early. And he just said to the pastor, here's what's going on. I'm in charge of the Genome Project. I'm, not, I'm a scientist. I'm not supposed to even be thinking about God, but for, I cannot escape it. The guy handed him a copy of Mere Christianity. And it changed our world. Because Francis Collins is now one of the greatest defenders of the faith. After he read that, he said, this makes total sense. Is it an airtight proof? No, but it makes total sense. And now he's one of the greatest defenders who has websites and is actually saying into speaking into the science community, hello, hello. So I ask you, honestly, what are your mechanisms? Do you have any that you have thought through that you could... Again, not trying to... You'll never prove God to anybody, but could you share from a mechanism... One of mine is the incredible sense of consistency in the universe and consistency between the universe, nature, and our faith system. There are a number of things that go on. I was just talking about how the quantum and, and, and Newtonian physics, there are, at the base core, there are things like matter and energy that work in a way that don't really have to work that way. We expect it to keep happening. Every day we get up, every time we spin around and we see the sun again, we just expect that that's going to keep happening. There's no rational reason why it has to keep happening that way. You could say, well, we base it on history. We base it on history, but that history is what gives us actually a frame of reference to say, not only does this go on, but we know things change all the time. Entropy is the second law of thermodynamics. Things are breaking down, left to their own. They do not get better. And yet, there's a conservation of matter and energy. And like, so how do both, even those two things are in tension with each other. The way light and dark work, the way 
death and life works. You've got to have death to have life, but you have to have life to have death. Well, what, who came up with that mechanism? It's actually not incredibly logical, but it works fantastically. And those two things are in, in absolute contrast against each other. They're in tension with each other. When you start to see it, this is what happens in my mind, I start to see those things as a system that actually work together with each other. And then it makes sense. Then I go, oh, well, that's how. And thing after thing after thing that comes at us from nature is built that way. There's always an opposing side, and they, they work together in each other. The funny thing is, this is it's not funny. I'm very grateful for this consistency. Our faith system is filled with those things. What's the number one thing? Every time you talk about a spiritual issue or a theological issue, what is it always boiled down to? Is it really sovereignty or is it really free will? Every, every theological conversation I've ever had ultimately gets down there. Is pride really a real thing? Can man really make a choice? Is, uh, is that legit or is God really in charge of everything? And the truth is, what does the Bible teach us about those two things? Both of those things are absolutely true at the exact same time. Okay, that's an incredible tensional system. It's always in tension. Every time you think about it, your brain goes a little, you know, because you're like, well, that doesn't line up. It doesn't work perfectly. It's not a math equation. Think about the fact of how God presented himself to us in the human being and God of Jesus Christ. How is something both God and human at the same time? You know, it took them 500 years to be able to actually articulate that in a way to where they wouldn't all kill each other over it in the early church because it doesn't make any sense. It's outside of... But when you see it as a system, like he had to be God and he had to be human, all of a sudden you go, oh, these two things work together with each other. Grace and judgment... How can God, how many times have people asked this question? How can God both love us and judge us? How can there both be heaven and hell? It lines up with what our universe sends to us. It's dangerous, and it's also the only thing that works. <laughs> and in fact, both sides of the coin are necessary to define themselves. You can't have one without the other. This is the hardest one for Christians. Righteousness doesn't make any sense without sin. There's no contrast. God knew exactly there would be righteousness and unrighteousness, and that's a tensional system. And in fact, uh, you know, well, standard question, why is there evil? I would ask you, why is there good? It's as reasonable of a question as why is there evil? They define each other. Stop and think about it. Love doesn't really mean much without hatred, without disdain. 
That mechanism, literally the more I study and then compare our faith system to the other faith systems of the world that are either about escape from this world because this world is just trash. There's nothing worth it here. Just go out. And that started with Plato. Or uh, some kind of an obedience system, a works contract with God where you get a better scenario than the guy next to you. Neither of those fit attentional system and leave it in tension. Our system actually leaves it right there. The other thing that I stand on, and you have yours, is the endless narratives of faithfulness that have gone on down through the centuries. Starting with Abraham, going through my great-grandparents, through my parents. That pass-on is not something that's just like a genetic code, but there's a a sense of this actually works for them. Life actually can function. Even in the worst times, faith is, is a reasonable outcome, and trusting in God is a far more enviable position than trusting in the universe. That's impersonal, that doesn't care, that is purely based on random. Those two things are major pillars for me. What are your pillars? Because here's what happens. Your voice, your worship, your gospel, everything will come out of those pillars. Jeff, hit that last passage in Romans 8, the 31 through, if you would. I wish I could read you the whole... Anybody want to stay and read the whole book of Romans? Because I would love to do that. Anybody want to do it? Probably not. But I suggest you do it and think of it in terms of this. What was Paul doing? What was he writing about? Paul is building, building an argument all the way from the very beginning to say the gospel is worth arguing over and talking about the interaction between the Jews and the Gentiles, how sin happens, the faith of Abraham. So he uses one of the, the great fathers as one of his arguments. He gets into chapter 6. Chapter 6 starts the exact same way. What shall we say about these things? And there he's talking about sin. Should we go ahead and sin because grace abounds? You know how he does that. Then he goes through the whole passage in 7 where he's like, well, the things that I want to do, I don't do. I feel this stress in between me, a tension between sin and living according to the Spirit, between in the realm of sin and the realm of the Spirit, aligns with our universe. Of course, we should feel that. We should never expect to feel other than that in light of things. And then Paul comes into 8, and he talks all those amazing things about the impact on the, on the universe, how prayer works, how God is working on our benefit, and all of those things, right? And then he gets here to this exact same idiom. It's a Greek little phrase that sets up a, okay, I'm now going to sum it up for you here, people. And he says, what shall we say in response to these things? And listen to this worship. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? <laughs> it's God who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? In other words, who even cares if we're being condemned? 
Nobody can do that. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution. He's almost dismissively kicking these to the curb. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword, who even cares? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. How does somebody hold that? How does somebody believe that? How does somebody want to actually embrace hardship, persecution, death? Something is different going on here. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because I'm persuaded, I'm convinced. And listen to these tensional systems. Neither death nor life. Angels or demons. The present or the future. The powers that be. Height or depth. You hear that as just a simple measurement of up or down. He heard it as you're either up on the high places able to see and worship God, or you're in the depths of the sea, which to a Jew is the worst possible scenario. None of these things, anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God. It's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to say, Amen. Hallelujah. That's worship. That's not just a mathematical conclusion, and he finishes it and carry the two, divide by whatever. That is, this is what I stand on. Do you hear how that worship, it's, it's a filled position. It's filled with truth. It's filled with almost unbelievable conclusions. But it's filled with a sense of this is what we know. One of my favorite authors, Michael Bird, wrote this. It's a treatise he did to to study the Apostles' Creed. And this is the end. Doubt can be a sign of spiritual struggle, a means of growing into maturity, and a pathway into a stronger and more resilient faith. He puts a little bit of a positive spin on doubt. But whatever sustains me in times of doubt, and let me tell you who this man is. He's He's probably the preeminent theologian in Australia and in one of the most respected theologians in our world right now. What sustains me in times of doubt is this one simple thing, the complete sorry, and utter worshipability of Jesus Christ. Jesus is magnetic. That's what Paul did right there. It can all fall apart. It can all seem like it's got holes in it. It can all seem like we're just being tricked here. But the truth is, you look Jesus in the eye, you got to worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these truths. We want to build our worship of you on truth. It actually carries... It gives substance. It's not just something that's a perceived or like a personal thing. It's got timeless substance underneath it. Thank you for so many mechanisms we can see and observe and embrace 
and yet that they don't work out in just a simple math figure to prove you're there. Thank you for building a world that needed faith. Thank you for that. We'll worship you for that today. We do that in Jesus' name. Amen.